Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined this morning by Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology, Tommy Keene, our professor of New Testament, uh, Dr. Peter Lee, our professor of Old Testament, and Paul Jean, instructor in New Testament, senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church. And we're going to continue now in this series that we've been doing. This is our uh, fourth in the series, dealing with the Apostles' Creed. And in this episode, we're going to talk about this line. And this is a packed line. We were just saying before we started talking, this might be one of the more packed lines uh, of the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed filled with packed lines. But this one is the one that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So let's start that off by talking about the first claim here. We've already talked about the I believe aspect, but we're now going to talk about I believe in Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to talk about Messiahhood, Christhood. Then we're going to talk about Christ's only sonship, okay, and how he relates to the Father. And then finally, we're going to talk about Christ's lordship. But let's start with Messiahhood, with the messianic nature of Christ's character and work. And to do that, I want to move it over to our resident Old Testament Messiah expert on the call today, Dr. Peter Lee. Peter Lee, get us started. What does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? All righty. Well, thanks, Scott. Yeah, uh, Jesus as Christ, you know, such an important concept. As you all know, the, the Greek word Christos there is basically the designation for Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, and so what we're dealing with here is the concept of Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, and that's what we refer to then when we call Jesus as the Christ. Now, you know, the, the idea of being a Messiah, the word Messiah actually is just, as you know, just a kind of an English version of the Hebrew Mashiach. And the Hebrew Mashiach basically just means uh, one who is anointed. In the Old Testament, uh, this is in reference particularly to the uh, royal office of the king and uh, the priestly office. Uh, they were, both of them were considered anointed ones, that is Mashiachs. And in fact, when you read uh, uh, something like Psalm 2, it makes a reference there to the anointed one, but it's not talking about it in any extraordinary way. It's just making a reference to the to an earthly king who is one who is anointed. Uh, it was sort of the way that they were designated and identified as being a royal figure for the sake of a king, a priestly figure in the sake of a priest. Uh, there must have been something a part of the coronation process when one became, uh, was coronated as king or made priest, that in that coronation process that they were anointed with oil and thus anointed ones. And for a long time, that's just sort of what that term meant. Uh, and frequently when you read it in the Old Testament, uh, that's, that's what it meant, that these were just uh, the anointed ones. But somewhere along the line in the history of salvation, the idea and that designation of the anointed one, spe specifically for the office of the priest and of course the office of the king, began to take on a, a real different kind of feel. It no longer was just, uh, just a generic identity of one who was anointed with oil, but now it was starting to identify an individual with a particular mission that God had given to them with uh, uh, an extraordinary giftedness and endowment of power and authority 
uh, that had a, a, a almost a supernatural mission, and it began to take on a real heightened sense. So that uh, when we come to the New Testament, the idea of the Messiah is more in lines with how now we understand and how we would come to ter- understand uh, the term Messiah as being someone who has been given an extraordinary message, an extraordinary ability, endowment of authority and power from God to accomplish his message for uh, the sake of his elect people. Uh, It's been discussed and it's been suggested that the first time that we see the word Messiah in that real extraordinary supernatural sense of the word is in Daniel 9 in reference to the Messiah, the prince there that would um, come to uh, liberate the people of God and give them a sense of salvation and stability. Perhaps there's a lot, of, a lot of truth to that. But so somewhere in the, along the lines there, that term of Messiah began to take on this real strong uh, supernatural sense. And so when we see, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus and being referred to as the Messiah uh, is identifying Jesus uh, in, in that regard. Uh, I think it's important to also remember that uh, we, I don't think we have left the identity of Jesus as a messianic king in that extraordinary sense of the word or a messianic high priest in that. Uh, extraordinary sense of that word Messiah, so that even Jesus is being referred to as Messiah, is talking about his role as priest king, and and the duties that uh, that are entailed there. It's interesting too that in, in you know even in Second Temple Jewish thought you see this anticipation going on during the time that Jesus' ministry is beginning, and you see with. Qumran, for instance, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see people waiting for messiahs to come, and they even talk about the messiah of Aaron and the messiah of David, you know, this priest and kingly role. Just a reminder that this is not kind of a Christian appropriation of an old idea and then adding a bunch of new stuff to it, but that this was something that was commonly felt during that time that Jesus' ministry is beginning, is that there was this anticipation, who will the messiah be? And that's part of the the, the kerygma, you know, I guess, of the, of the gospel writers, here he is, we found him, here's the Messiah. Yeah, that's exactly right, Scott. The, um, you know, the, in other words, the anticipation of this uh, extraordinary individual was already built into the Old Testament. The Second Temple Jews, sensing that, was anticipating this, the, the expectation of this messianic figure and what's also interesting, that's, you see, it's interesting, there really isn't a lot of Messianic texts in, in Second Temple Judaism. There's a few here and there. Uh, one of the great um, benefits we got from Qumran was from the Dead Sea Scrolls is a little bit more Jewish understanding now of Messiah. And as you mentioned, one of the things now we understand is multiple Messiahs. The Jews were anticipating multiple Messiahs, which kind of puts the, the priest-king identity of of Jesus in the New Testament, sort of in a, in a certain uh, helpful historical setting. A second temple Jewish hermeneutic is to see multiple messiahs, at least two, maybe three. You know, we hadn't, I didn't talk, we didn't talk at all about a prophetic messiah and there's debate whether or not there is such one because, you know, the, the prophet was never anointed in the same way that a king and a, and a priest was. So is, can we therefore speak of a, of a prophetic uh, Messiah, and, and it's debated, but uh, but at least uh, you see the expectation of two, at least possibly two, maybe three in Second Temple Judaism, and that seems to be their hermeneutic. The New Testament hermeneutic is to see that priest-king line in the Old Testament 
uh, converge in one individual uh, in, in Jesus. And that seems to be the real big difference between the two in terms of, well, amongst other things, in terms of the, the exegesis of the Messiah, the anticipation. Uh, we as Christians believe in one. Judaism believed in multiple. Just a little footnote to the Qumran discussion there. There's a, the, the word Messiah is never used, but uh, 11Q Melchizedek, uh, the Melchizedek in that passage, I mean, it's a little snippet. It's, it's a post-it note worth of material, but Melchizedek has every indication of doing messianic work. You know, he's coming, he's throwing out the Roman, the Katim, he's, he's making uh, conquest upon the earth. He's an agent of God to, to do such, um, you know, and, and, seems to be regarded as a a priest king in second temple judaism yeah that's another interesting thing about the uh you know even in the new test or in the old testament you you know they, they seem to anticipate a sort of an ideal messiah but a, an ideal messiah in kind of extraordinary uh you know descriptions you know in all and, and that he's going to vanquish chaos and destroy death and and, and things like that. But it's definitely clear by the time that we get to Qumran, they're still thinking a, a human Messiah, you know, just a ideal son of David or an ideal Aaronic son. Uh, it really is one of the other things that you see in the New Testament that we're, we are talking God-man. We're not talking just ideal, you know, son of David. We are talking incarnation. And that's the other extraordinary thing about New Testament messianism. It's it's not just a union of the royal priestly office in one individual. It's also kind of a vertical union, so to speak, uh, of God becoming flesh. And that really makes sort of Jesus this central point in the, in the entire flow of the history of salvation in terms of messianism. It's, it's royal priestly office united in one, but it's also this uh, union of the Lord Yahweh which you know we'll talk about later, uh, and son of David united now in into one, and and that distinction that we see of the Lord distinct from His Messiah, as we see that line in the Old Testament now again converges there uh, in Jesus. I think it's in Acts and in, in um, is it in Peter's sermon where he says, "This Jesus that you have now seen is both Lord and Christ." You know to see that that Yahweh. Uh, divine understanding of Jesus and the messianic son of David line of Jesus is both being connected there to Jesus. And as you're seeing that those, all uh, those converging points now uh, come together there in, in, in Christ. That kind of what Jesus is getting at in the passage that we find in Matthew 22, where there's this discussion about who's the Messiah, whose son will he be? And Jesus makes this very interesting point, citing Psalm 110, where you have the Lord, Adonai, said to my Lord, Adoni, right? Uh, so you have the divine name, then speaking to my master, okay? Sit at my right hand, I'll make uh, your enemies uh, your footstool. And Jesus says, clearly this isn't a normal father-son relationship between David and his son. You know, how can he call his son, Adoni, my master? Right. There's, there's something different going on here in this relationship with between David and the Messiah, which is hinting at that thing you're talking about. This isn't this is no ordinary 
you know, royal heir. As right. Well. And, and in fact, uh, you could see it, uh, you know, it, because of Second Samuel 7, because of Psalm 2, the expectation would have been for Jesus to call him son or uh, David to call him son, not not Lord. So why does he call him Lord? Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what the New Testament writers are saying. Um, the anticipation is this is to use the word son, but he doesn't. So, yeah. I think this leads us naturally to the conclusion that the only person that is fitting to be Messiah is the one who is eternally the son of God, right? Coming back to our discussion of the one and only son from last week or eternal generation, right? That the one who became Messiah was eternally the divine son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity. And so theologians have always considered it fitting that in the missions of God, when the father sends the son to become the incarnate one for us, uh, the son was already eternally generated by the father, such that I'm trying to avoid inter-Trinitarian language and jargon, but it's kind of difficult. The one who was eternally generated became the one who was also sent to be incarnate for us. The divine processions is mirrored in the divine missions, right? So I think there's this fitting for the eternal son to be the Messiah. I ask a follow-up about that um, to our Old Testament guys, um, who I think we're giving way too much time in this episode, but but nevertheless. Uh, Go ahead. Go yeah. ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll entertain some questions from our New Testament brethren. Okay, appreciate it. <laughs> um, how, how I, I like that idea, and I think you see these, these little uh, hints of the like you're both saying of kind of the uh, or all three of you are kind of saying about the the grandiosity of who this Messiah will be. It's somebody more than just a normal son. What do you think an old Testament reader, like if you're, if you are in that period of time could appropriate about that could truly understand because, because no one sees the incarnation coming in any kind of in its fullest sense. So what would an Old Testament reader be able to understand and appropriate? I don't know if they would have concluded incarnation in the Old Testament. Uh, I I do think you might need the new for that. I I guess what you do see is the Messiah being described in in attributes and characteristics that are also used to describe Yahweh or God himself. In other words, it's sort of the ideal uh, son and uh, he's being described in, in these sort of communicable attributes, I guess you could say. Uh, you know, one great example of that is uh, Psalm 111 and Psalm 112. They're right next to each other. When you, and Psalm 111 is a total hymn dedicated to Yahweh. Psalm 112 is a, a, a praise, sort of a wisdom psalm dedicated to the, to the son of David, this messianic son of David. When you read about the descriptions, they using the same terms to describe each other. God is righteous, holy, and just. The son of David is righteous, holy, and just, uh, uh, and things like that. Um, I, I guess I often speak of what I like to refer to as a messianic momentum, sort of a, uh, an eschatological inertia, that uh, the direction the Old Testament was taking us was the incarnation. But it takes the New Testament for us to kind of come to the realization, oh, my goodness, we've been talking about God manifesting the flesh. I would say there's also kind of an incarnational momentum, you could say, in the Old Testament. I mean, there's this there's this idea that goes all the way back to the beginning, which is God's willingness and desire to walk amongst his people, whether it's in the garden 
you know, or in other theophany. We have a variety of theophanies in the Old Testament where God appears in the form of a human. Um, of course, this is kind of this probably culminates, you know, in, in the tabernacle and temple where we see there there's a strong, the strong, again, momentum and interest in the Mosaic covenant that God be with his people and tabernacle with them. Actually, for Moses, it's not enough to receive the blessings of the covenant if the Lord is not with them and amongst them. And so there's this kind of driving interest, personal interest of the father to be with his people of the Godhead, to be with the people of God. And then I think you do actually, I think this one little, you know, not, not to keep going back to Daniel, but Daniel does in some way sort of provide linking material, you know, uh, he's linking tissue um, between the old and the new Testament. And you have this passage about this person who is inarguably divine being in the form and the likeness of a son of man and then being presented to the divine the ancient of days and so so you you see this this as the old testament is coming to a close this anticipation of you know god in human form and yet you know that's kind of left unanswered you know it's this anticipation and then as the new testament begins christ comes on the scene I think what you guys are describing in terms of these momentums and anticipations displays in a very concrete way what Voss is trying to articulate when he said that the whole Bible is an organism, right? It's a living being, that everything that you see in the New Testament was already there in seed form from the very beginning in Genesis, and then it grew and grew into a nib, into a tree, and blossoms out. But there's nothing in the new that mechanically replaces anything in the old, but it flows organically and naturally from the old. So I'd love to hear as well, maybe some some New Testament reflections about Jesus Christ as the son now. And, and I'd love to hear what Tommy and Paul would have in view, because there's some passages in the New Testament that could seem perplexing for some uh, readers, right? Romans 1, 3 to 4, Jesus Christ was declared as the son of God through his resurrection. What does that mean? I thought it was eternally the son of God. This is talking about something different here rather than ontological sonship, what do we have in view here when we, got, when we come to the New Testament texts declaring Christ as the Son? Is that too much? I'm waiting for the genius in the room. No, 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 no. Tommy, this is not my area of... Um, my uh, comments would fit well the... Um, yeah, so. <clears throat> it's an interesting gray issue because at some points the new testament talks about jesus becoming the son and at some points he's obviously always the son jesus in the synoptics uh doesn't necessarily avoid son of god language but he prefers to talk about himself as the son of man john by contrast son of god throughout um there's an actually an interesting passage where kind of you get both ideas combined in hebrews 1 uh, Jesus is, you know, that long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then you get this description of the son. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so you can't get any more second person of the Trinity than that. And it's some of the highest of high Christology in the new Testament. And then immediately following this, we've got a, like a temporal reference after making purification for sins. So something's going to happen in space and time. 
after the crucifixion, what happened? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become more superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What is the name he inherits? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So the son who was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature for all time becomes son after making purification for sins in sitting at the right hand of the father of almighty. So the, the Hebrews kind of equivocates on the language of son, which is it eternal son or messianic son. And I think that's the, the concept we need to pull from the old Testament there is and, and everything that Peter and, and Scott have been saying about that, that what he, what he inherits is an office, the office of Adamic Davidic son promise for all time. And, and that, has no one has sat on that throne up to this point the son of the son of god has always ruled over the heavens and earth he, he's always upheld the world by the word of his power but what we have been waiting for is a son of man to sit on that throne a son of adam to sit on that throne and that can only be done by the god man jesus christ and so now that throne has Jesus as its ruler and head, all things being subject to him, all things put under his feet. And it's especially fitting because now what you have really are two different categories, right? There's that eternal ontological sonship that the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the second person, has always had. But at the same time, now you're, you're bringing up the second category, this redemptive historical sonship, the one who would be the head of the church, the king of the world who is also the adamic one right the the son of man i'm thinking about colossians 1 15 to 20 as well uh, the fact that he was the firstborn of all, of all creation the image of the invisible god and then by verses 18 19 and 20 he was also the head of the church the one who made a, a perfect sacrifice so that there would be a reconciliation for those who are still sinners so these two categories are i think incredibly useful when we're talking about the son of god who could be referring to this divine sonship that Jesus Christ in his divine nature has always had on the one hand. And then there's this human sonship, which he inherited, but also at the same time, which he accomplished in a real sense because he obeyed where Adam had failed. Yeah. And that, that throne has always had an Adamic shape to it. It's always been fit for a human being from creation. We, we've talked about this in a couple of episodes, I think at this point, but the way in God has created, he's, he, he has placed, he, he had placed man to be the ruler of the created order of, of all things in this cosmos. We failed to do that, which means that that seat has been empty. Yeah. It, it, the Adamic shape has not been filled until the God man has come. I think that ties in this broader, we've, we've been talking about the kingship and priesthood and this kind of Adamic role, there's this language of sonship throughout the Old Testament that really is used to talk about the covenant partner with God, right? And Israel is called a firstborn son in Exodus 4. And, uh, you know, Ezekiel 16 is Israel is this child who is adopted by the father, right? Who's found on the side of the road. Um, 
And then you have Matthew taking these passages about sonship in the Old Testament, referring to the people of God, really. So this would be Israel. This would be Israel as an Adam, right? Israel is, is, is kind of um, the hope for Israel is that it will be, it'll play this Adamic role. Uh, Israel as a priestly nation, right? And Matthew takes passages like Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I called my son. And of course, you go back to Hosea 11.1, 1, he's talking about Israel. And Matthew says, this is true of Jesus. And then Jesus goes into the water of baptism, comes out and the Lord says, this is my son, right? Um, and so you have this identification between Jesus and the faithful covenant partner, whether that's Moses, whether that's David, whether that's Abrahamic covenant, Jesus is the faithful covenant partner. And then, of course, in all these passages that we've been talking about, this gets exploded out. This is no ordinary man, right? Which I even think there's, there's, a, there's even another Old Testament thing that's happening there and that you have God throughout the Old Testament say, act like me, be holy because I am holy. I am one, therefore you should be one in your love for me. You know, this kind of divine character requires a response of the people that reflects the divine character. And what we see in Christ is that that's not possible until we have the incarnate Christ before us. And we can see what it looks like for us to be faithful and righteous and loving God in a fitting way that fits his character, because we're now in Jesus, who is the incarnate son. Yeah, right? it, it really, it really does bring together all, all of redemptive history, you know, prophet, priest, and king, we mentioned earlier, those are certainly Israel categories, but before they were Israel categories, they were Adamic categories. That, yeah. That's what Adam was to be. And in, in one, you know, in one divine couple, as it were, Adam and Eve, that those three offices get split and take on an Israel shape to them. And then they get recombined with Christ uh, in one, one person, the God man who begins a new creation and is, as Gray said, uh, is given to the church as this as the seed of that. Yeah, Gaffin's comments on Romans 1, 1 through 4 are so helpful. Uh, this passage speaks directly to our conversation. Uh, let me just read a portion of it where Paul says, concerning his son who is descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Gaffin, you know, no one can replicate Gaffin, and it's um, unfortunate he never wrote a commentary on Romans, although he always says to look at Murray's. Uh, but two things he says here are uh, generally theologically, this passage is viewed as uh, talking about Jesus' two natures, but he argues that the contrast of the flesh and spirit point to more of a redemptive historical interpretation of this passage. Never years ago, he said, working off the Greek, um, and again, uh, I'm not doing justice to all his nuances, but he says basically something similar to what Tommy just said, that somehow by Jesus's resurrection from the dead, he becomes the son of God in power. And in a way that's mysterious to us, he becomes something that he was not before. And, you know, again, um, Gethin isn't suggesting, you know, that God is not immutable, but he's talking about from a historical, redemptive historical uh, perspective, the son does now become exalted in a new way by his resurrection. 
Yeah, Paul, I think that's great. And uh, I've often thought something very similarly in terms of um, the way the book of Acts will use that very famous line from Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I can't remember where in the book of Acts it's, it cites this because, you know, I'm, I'm in the Old Testament where he, the, I, I think it's in the book of Acts where they interpreted the begottenness of Jesus, the sonship of Jesus, not as eternal generation, interestingly, but uh, it tied into resurrection, that Jesus is born again, so to speak, when he is raised from the dead, and that he is now son in his resurrection in a way that he was not son before. And that just is such a, you know, such a mind-blowing idea that really can, can only be analyzed uh, historical redemptively, not systematically. And it's getting at a lot of what Gray was saying earlier about the eternal sonship of Christ, while at the same time acknowledging that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he is now son in power, uh, I guess, using Paul's language there in, in Romans 1. Yeah, I think it comes back down to it being a vindication of his obedience, right? Both, both passive and active, he obeyed where Adam had failed, and he also suffered the penalty because of Adam's failures. And so by completing the penal requirements and also the righteous requirements of the covenant of works, right, he was vindicated and hence he was raised up as the true son, the one who would be the Messiah, the one who, again, succeeded where Adam had failed. So I think uh, covenant theology at the end of the day is indispensable to get at the, the work of Jesus Christ and how he'd accomplish his work. Because without covenant theology, I think his work just becomes hanging in the air with nothing foundational to secure it. And I think also this speaks into the importance of the historical Adam and the fact that Jesus Christ filled in where Adam had failed. So uh, RTS also had just published a wonderful new volume on covenant theology, right? And I think uh, it's such a crucial topic precisely because the whole Bible speaks of this covenantal shape and Jesus Christ's person and work is actually the center uh, of this covenantal theology. So why add the term Lord? So we got Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, then son, which we understand is kind of like that eternal nature and his messianic sonship in, in its Adamic shape now. And then our Lord, what does that contribute to the whole? I'll try to venture potential answer. I'm thinking particularly about the ascension of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ has departed and is now ascended at the right hand of God means that he's the head of the church even today, that he rules his church, that there is no uh, human representation on earth that needs to substitute his lordship, that he continues to rule the church by his word and spirit. So in terms of what the church ought to be doing now, they are under that lordship. They are leading the church and administering the word and sacraments on the basis of that lordship. And so the ascension of Jesus Christ, I think, might be highlighted there in, in a unique way. Yeah, there's a sense in which you start with a sort of anthropocentrism with the messianic title, and then you move to a theocentrism with the Trinitarian sonship language. And I'm not sure what you would say, sort of maybe perhaps even a kind of a an ethical, you know, finality there. If this is true, if he is truly Messiah and he's truly son, then that means he is Lord, right? And this is highlighting, of course, you know, in, in what in the New Testament, the point that's made, you know, in, in, 
in some instances, like Paul uh, arguing that, you know, we have one God, the Father, and one Lord, you know, Kyrios, Jesus Christ, and there he's referencing the divine name in the Old Testament, the, the Tetragrammaton, yod heh vav heh and how it'd be pronounced in Jewish tradition and reading the, the Hebrew text as Adonai or as Lord, as it's often translated in the Greek. So you're getting kind of a reference to that of his deity. And yet the way that it's, it's often used throughout the Gospels is this idea of the Lord, you know, Jesus as Lord being Jesus as master, being Jesus as teacher, right? His, his authoritarian, probably wrong term, but all authority you know, in heaven and on earth being given to him. And that's a major aspect of this. Jesus doesn't just merely provide the way to salvation for his people through union with them. But he also provides this, there, there, there's this ethical aspect, which is that he is our Lord and he is owed our allegiance and our obedience. And there's a unity in the church in that as well, that we all claim him to be master, to be, to be rabbi. There's this interesting uh, line, and Peter's, Peter kind of gets there at Acts 2, but in Acts 17, Paul preaching to the, uh, the, the, the Areopagus, he says, the times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to, be, to repent because he fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. Hmm. You know, Jesus has been given the authority to bring eschatological judgment, bring final judgment. You know, that, and I wanted to hear you Old Testament guys on this because, well, because I say this in class, I'm hoping that it's true, that, uh, you know, that the expectation from an Old Testament perspective is that the Father would be the one who initiates and culminates that final eschatological judgment and it seems that what's happened in the ascension is is the father delegates or designates or better to use the bible's language appoints the son to that task that he is the god man is fully god fully human is the best to judge children of of adam well i mean in the without going all the way back through redemptive history you know in in the in the anticipation of restoration who will be brought in to bring judgment against the enemies of God? It will be God's people, right? It's the way it's kind of phrased. As a matter of fact, salvation is often described as on one end being saved, but what are you saved from? Well, you're saved from the enemies of the people, the enemies of God. This goes all the way back to God's promise to Abraham. Those who judge, those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. That this has always been a part of the plan that, that his people would be brought into this endeavor of restoring the heavens and the earth. And that'll be both through restoring the kingdom, but also through conquering its enemies. And Jesus as the faithful, I mean, I think, I think this is the kind of language you see in the new Testament, Jesus as the faithful partner, Jesus as faithful Israel, as Jesus as my son, as the Davidic King, Jesus is now appointed to do that task. He and those who are in him. Hmm, that's helpful. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. In fact, I, as, as you were talking, Scott, and, and in light of Tommy's question, I was just thinking Psalm 2, uh, which is exactly sort of what Tommy was just getting at. Here are these raging nations who are plotting and making these unholy alliances one, with one another to 
in rebellion against God and his anointed one, which we know in, in the context of Psalm 2 is the son of God, which presumes this is God the Father we're talking about here in Psalm 2. And the way that God the Father there is going to judge these nations is by sending his anointed son. And so the son becomes the instrument of God's uh, wrath against the nations. And thus, he encourages the son, remember, to ask of the world, ask of the nations as your inheritance, because that's what God the Father wants to give to his son is these rebellious nations. That's the extent of his dominion and his authority. And, and, and then I think it's in verse 9 there in Psalm 2 that says that 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 messianic son, this this now newly endowed coronated son of God, the son of David, who is now son of God, will shatter the nations with a with a rod of iron. I think is what it says there. Uh, so it's it's definitely talking about judgment language, but the way that God is judging the nations is through the instrumentality of the messianic son of David, who has now been given the new designated title of son of God. You are my son. God says, when you have become king, um, which is really interesting, I find, because uh, Psalm 2.9 is quoted in Revelation 2.23, I think, but it's applied there not to Jesus, but it's applied to the church, mm -hmm. uh, where the church is now, which is, uh, to me, this is one of the best, greatest things that we, that we have in um the, the Vossian biblical theology tradition is this union with Christ idea that all of the messianic language that we said, what we see in Christ applies to the church in our union with Christ so that we now are the, uh, the son of God of Psalm two. We are the ones that are now being coronated as sons or coronated as Kings and we will be the instrumentality through which God will use to judge the nations in the last battle, in the last days. And to me, that that's just, I mean, praise God. That's super helpful. Guys, we should do this more often because I feel like I learned so much from these things. Just for me. That's why, that's why I stay quiet. <laughs> well, okay, this leads us. To, it's something I want to touch on because it's here in the Apostles' Creed. It's it's in this early Christian confession, and I think we find it in other early Christian creeds as well. But the idea of Jesus being Lord has sort of clear implications for us as followers of Jesus, right? You know, this idea that we're we're bound up together in the Spirit, we're bound up in our union with Him. And that's a great cause for hope and in our salvation. And yet at the same time that we have this, this allegiance that he is Lord, that when we face the trials of the world around us and competing narratives, right? That, that there's this Christian inclination towards what would my Lord Jesus say right now? And this isn't just what would Jesus do kind of WWJD kind of trite bracelet thing. But rather, this is, this is recognizing that in my decisions in life, in my decisions about how to live, what to think, what's right, what's wrong, that I have this rabbi, right? And maybe this is particularly relevant for those of us in academics, right? To, to have, a, have, a, um, have a hermeneutic, have a theology 
that is presided over by Lord Jesus. That's a strange way to say it, right? We don't talk about it that way. And partly saying it in order just to kind of emphasize the, the, the radicalness of it, right? But that Jesus has a say in my truth claims, in the propositions that I'm involved in, in my interpretation of scripture, what he says matters a lot to me. And as an Old Testament professor, this is a big deal because this means that Jesus influences the way I interpret this ancient Old Testament text. Jesus has a say, not just a say, he has the say, right? And sometimes there are things where, you know, I'm making a decision and I'm not sure exactly what the right thing is, but my rabbi says this. And so I go with my rabbi, right? Every time, because he's my Lord. He has that kind of authority. So there's this kind of epistemological aspect to the Lordship of Christ that I don't want to miss because for me, I know it really influences the way that I do my job, the thing that I've been called to do. It's interesting when you see Jesus teaching in the New Testament, the reaction of the crowds is, Sometimes Jesus will be saying something that's actually fairly conventional that everyone agrees to, but the reaction of the crowds, even in those moments, will be he's doing it differently. There's a different <laughs> tone. And when they try to put their finger on exactly what the difference is, it's he taught us with authority, not as the scribes. And that's not actually a criticism of the scribes. The scribes no. are supposed to be deferential, right? They're supposed to say, okay, well, look, we've looked at the word and this is what it says and blah, blah, blah. And we've really studied it. And Jesus is supposed to, as the son of God, come and say, Moses said to you, but I say. And he, he comes with that, that authority that is, that is not contrary to Moses, but mm -hmm. as authority over Moses. And it's one, of, it's one of the subtle but powerful claims that he's yeah. different, that he's more than just a prophet, that he taught for the first time as one with authority. There's such a direct analogy. Again, I feel like to my own life and that as I read those passages, I always think I don't want to be that kind of academic who is so wrapped up in my own sort of deferential program that I won't lecture, that, that I won't hear, or maybe even oppose the sayings of the teacher right? The sayings of, of the Lord. I, I, I don't want to be in that kind of position where I'm trying to protect my own kingdom in a way that's inappropriate. Because that also, the, him, Jesus saying that, of course, is one of, the, one of the causes for the great opposition to him among the religious authorities of his day. You know, Scott, that's a really interesting comment because, um, you know, as a pastor, you see that that uh, tendency of interpreting the Bible a particular way uh, instead of letting Jesus have, you might say, the final word, is true for many just lay people members mm -hmm. as well. And usually the way they interpret the Bible is the way they've heard it preached and taught in Bible studies. And it tends to be, especially here in the West, very individualistic, pietistic almost, right? And it's, it's almost uncanny how, uh, you might say, people's interpretive method, which they may not even be aware of, right? is has become like an untouchable thing you can't ever speak against it right mm. and so your like kind of receptiveness or openness i think is good not just for or it's not just necessary for you know students in the bible in the scholastic field but just you know, anyone that wants to follow jesus needs to think about how the gospel jesus lordship uh, reforms the way we read the bible but you now i just think that's interesting as a pastor 
that's an area that people don't really think through how they read the Bible, why. And they sort of assume that their way is just the right way, even if they've never assumed, even if they've never asked why and how they interpret the Bible the way they do. Yeah, that's good. I think that's one of the healthy impulses of the Reformation understood properly, which is that willingness to go back and to test human authority against the teaching of Scripture and against Christ, against his teaching, his, his instruction. And that's a temptation we all wrestle with daily, I'm sure. Okay, well, this line is certainly packed with theological depth, and we could continue plumbing its depths uh, for hours to come, but we have a whole lot more creed to talk about. So we'll be back to talk about the next line in the Apostles' Creed uh, as we're going to continue unpacking the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ and how it's represented here in the Apostles' Creed. So this has been a great far-ranging discussion. Thank you, brothers, for being a part of it. And I look forward to being back and discussing this further with you. And for everyone else, take care. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. And this line, as I was looking at it this morning, this line, they, our, our Apostles' Creed composers really packed it in on this one, didn't they? And so we can be forgiven for not doing our normal half hour long episode. Um, so it's their fault. It was their fault. The creeds you gave me, Lord. <laughs> Is that an Adamic reference? I think that was. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's good.